This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week, how the nuclear bomb changed the stories we tell about scientists. The idea that science and technology could bring about the end of the world um, was psychologically hugely powerful. And Ebola is finally on the wane. But what can we learn for future epidemics? Sometimes people ask me, um, what do I think the next big pandemic or epidemic is going to be? And I always answer, it's the one that nobody ever thought of. It's the one that nobody ever imagined. Plus, working out how organisms reproduced over half a billion years ago. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy. 70 years ago this week, the US military dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city Hiroshima. Three days later, another was dropped on Nagasaki. Between them, the bombs killed tens of thousands, ushering in the end of the Second World War. These atomic bombs were the product of the Manhattan Project, a huge research and development programme which brought together many of the great scientists of the day. In the immediate aftermath of the war, the development of the bomb was somewhat celebrated by the West as a means to avoid future conflict. But in the decades that followed, public opinion changed as the Cold War formed between Western and Eastern states, with both sides developing vast arsenals of nuclear arms. All-out nuclear war, and with it, the destruction of human civilization, became a very real public fear. But did the fear of the nuclear bomb spill into concerns about science itself? And if so, how did this change the stories we told about scientists in the 20th century? Science journalist Phil Ball has written on this topic. The idea that science and technology could bring about the the, you know, the end of the world um, was quite new and was psychologically hugely powerful. And I think that was clear from a lot of the films and books and discussions around scientists at that time. Stories of scientists creating destructive forces predate the Second World War. In Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Dr Frankenstein creates a literal monster. But the nature of the threat was different back then. Up until the 20th century, this idea of the scientist as a potential threat 
is is very much couched in terms of the 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 lone scientist making a discovery and doing something terrible with it. So you know that's certainly what happens in Frankenstein. It's also what happens in Jekyll and Hyde. It's what happens in H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man. These are all loners working in an attic somewhere and making some terrible discovery. Whereas in the twentieth century these suspicions of science became much more about science as an institution. People became aware that that science was now in some ways very closely connected to the military. It was then that you started to see some kind of perception that there was this thing called the um, the, the military-industrial complex, that military and industry were going hand-in-hand hand to create catastrophic, potentially catastrophic weapons. In the post-nuclear bomb age, the stories we told about scientists took on a new shape. Cinema may offer a good place to investigate these changes. The role of uh, science and in particular of nuclear science in public consciousness is very clear in the kind of all the famous B-movies from the 1950s in particular. I mean, Godzilla being one, he's, you know, mutated by uh, radioactivity. The one that is often referred to quite rightly uh, is Dr. Strangelove. In the film by Stanley Kubrick, Dr. Strangelove is the unhinged nuclear science advisor to the President of the United States, a darkly comedic parody of the government scientists of the day. The story concludes with the annihilation of the entire world due to a nuclear doomsday machine, which was supposed to act as a deterrent. The whole point of the doomsday machine is lost. If you keep it a secret, why didn't you tell the world, eh? It's kind of striking that, um, you know, Kubrick handles this as satire, as though to say, well, <laughs> what the hell, we could, there's nothing we could do about this. Filmmakers and storytellers were not the only group simplifying portraits of scientists. According to David Edgerton, a historian of science at King's College London, spokespeople for science were keen to propagate myths of their own. They wanted to show that science and war essentially had nothing to do with each other, that science was on the side of peace, uh, on the side of the good rather than the, than the bad. And once the bomb came to be associated with the bad, uh, this distancing had to be demonstrated. So, for example, one of the first books on the atomic bomb was called Brighter Than a Thousand Suns, The Moral and Political History of the Atomic Physicists. So, yes, very particular stories were told in what was seen as a, as a defence of uh, scientists against the charge of being responsible for these horrors of the modern of the modern world. David doesn't think science was as distrusted as it may appear in the wake of the atomic bomb. Well, there was certainly a fear of of what science was, was capable of. That's that's very different from a notion of, of distrust or mistrust of of, uh, of of science. Of course, uh, people recognised that, that the bomb could destroy uh, the world. Um, and, of course, they were, they were worried about that. Now, I know scientists have a tendency, or at least certain misguided spokesmen for and women for science, uh, a tendency to say that science is distrusted and that is a major problem. I don't think science is, is distrusted scientists tend to be more trusted than, uh, say, journalists or, or politicians. Age, it seems, impacts people's relationship with the atomic bomb. For younger generations that didn't live through the Cold War, the threat of nuclear weapons may feel abstract. But for people like Phil Ball, who grew up in the 1960s, the atomic bomb still conjures up strong fears. 
my suspicion is that anyone who is at least as old as me has that idea, that fear, really, deeply in their consciousness. Um, so it is something that I think about. It's actually something that I even dream about. Um, and, you know, those images that we saw in the films of the 1960s and the 1970s of mushroom clouds are, are still very, very strong. And it actually concerns me slightly that this is something that has gone off the boil because, it, you know, I think it is still uh, a danger, a threat that we need to think about very carefully. That was Phil Ball and before him, David Edgerton. Head over to nature.com forward slash news for a piece out last week on the Second World War the war that would become known as the Physicists' War. Coming up, more unsettling discussion as we look back at the Ebola epidemic. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Jeff Marsh. A new species of carnivorous plant has been discovered from an amateur naturalist's Facebook photos. The social network snaps were shared with biologist Paolo Minatel-Gonella from University of Sao Paulo, who quickly realised the significance of this plant kingdom status update. He and his colleagues went to find the insect-munching sundew plant, now technically known as Drosera magnifica, which is confined to a single habitat on a mountain in southeastern Brazil. Sadly, although this plant's got a lot of likes amongst botanists, its close relatives are considered critically endangered because coffee and eucalyptus plantations threaten their habitat. You can read that article in full in Phytotaxa. The risk of colon cancer from red meat may be boosted by gut microbes. A pigment found in red meat called heme has been linked with this killer disease as it damages cells lining the gut, causing them to proliferate out of control. To assess the role of the gut microbes, researchers at the University Medical Center Utrecht fed mice a diet containing heme whilst giving some a side dish of antibiotics. The mice given antibiotics showed no increase in gut damage or cell proliferation. Heme increased the levels of certain bacteria which break down the gut mucus lining, exposing the gut cells to the damaging heme. The researchers suggest that monitoring mucus degradation in the gut could serve as a useful biomarker for colon cancer risk. For the full story, visit PNAS. Kerry's not here this week, but before she left, she took a look at the Ebola epidemic, asking what it will take to end it and whether future outbreaks can ever be predicted or planned for. The worst is over. Ebola is finally on the wane in West Africa. Thousands have died during the outbreak, mostly in three countries, Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia. But right now, except for a little uptick in Liberia last week, the number of cases is dropping off. David Morans is an epidemiologist with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease in the States, and he's a medical doctor. He was in Guinea treating patients when I spoke to him this week. Overall, um, there are far fewer cases, and it's not clear the epidemic will go away, but it's certainly been puttering along at a lower level recent weeks, and it feels that way in country. Some of the alarm that was raised when you know everybody knew friends and family who were dying that's not happening now. The cases are fewer and far between, and most places are, seem to be free of Ebola at the moment. It would be easy to think that this is the outbreak coming to an end. But that would be a dangerous mistake. In this clip, UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon is speaking at the International Ebola Recovery Conference in New York earlier this month. We have to uh, go until the end, until we see the last uh, patient cured, and there will be no further 
cases. But the political response to the epidemic has not always been this rigorous. That's according to Joanne Liu, the international president of Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. From, I would say, March 2014 until basically the end of July, there were very, very <coughs> few actors that were uh, responding to the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. It's only when, uh, when there were the first cases of uh, international aid workers were infected and repatriated in the States that finally the world woke up. But there have been things to celebrate. David Morans, treating patients in Guinea, has been impressed by the response of local people in local health systems. Having myself lived and worked in Africa before, I was here in the 70s working in Sierra Leone on loss of fever. The ability of the local system, the physicians and nurses, the ministries of health, to scale up and meet a tremendous challenge working with international partners and um, they themselves, these countries having very few funds and limited resources. I think they've done a remarkable job. But it's not clear that all the lessons learned from the Ebola outbreak this time round will transfer to future pandemics, particularly in predicting when and what those pandemics will be. David Morans again. I think our ability to predict a pandemic before it occurs is really close to zero right now. Of all the things we can do or might be able to do in the future, predicting epidemics is not something that I think is very likely we're going to be able to do. It's not that we don't know about the science of viruses or transmission. It's that viruses can mutate so quickly they'll always be ahead of us. Sometimes people ask me, um, what do I think the next big pandemic or epidemic is going to be? And I always answer, it's the one that nobody ever thought of. It's the one that nobody ever imagined. Morins is a modest and measured speaker, But like any infectious disease specialist, he has kind of a dark imagination. You know, I think of it kind of, I think of scenarios. What if the next thing is some, uh, an outbreak of some disease just as deadly anywhere in the world um, and it threatens to become pandemic and the Western world is not going to be spared? What capacity do we have to stop it? What do we need to have in place to be assured we could stop it? I don't know the answer to that. We don't have anything right now, but we maybe should have and we should think and talk about it. Perhaps imagining an outbreak striking the Western world could help us prepare for future outbreaks, wherever they are. David Morans finds much to be hopeful for, even in the face of the current outbreak, the worst in living memory. 10,000 or so people died. You know, you could say that's a terrible failure. But on the other hand, now we're having a trickle of cases today. And the difference between then and now, in great measure, I think, is due to the application uh, in, a, in, a, in a wide geographic area of very intensive public health efforts. It's made a difference. Not a cure, it's not an, uh, an absolute preventive, but it, 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 uh, it, it dialed down a terrible epidemic into one that is just bad. David Morans, epidemiologist from the NIH, and before him, Joanne Liu, international president of Médecins Sans Frontières. For more analysis of the Ebola epidemic, including a feature, comment pieces and news of a successful vaccine trial, head to our specials page, nature.com forward slash Ebola. Shamini Bundel's been getting all excited this week over the reproductive methods of some strange Precambrian blobs. So we sent her off to find out more. There is a strange period after the two billion years when there was only microbial life, but before the famous Cambrian explosion. 
This was the Ediacaran period, and the stuff that evolved back then was weird. So weird, we have no idea how its inhabitants relate to any living creature today. What we do now know, however, thanks to a new paper in Nature, is how one of them reproduced. It seems a pretty big leap to go from what is this to, and this is how it had babies, in a single paper. So I've come to the Earth Sciences Department at Cambridge to quiz Dr Emily Mitchell, who's lead author on the study, and find out how you work out the reproductive strategy of something that died 565 million years ago. So Emily, first off, what is this creature that you've been studying? I've been studying uh, Fractifusus, which is this uh, ediacaran macro-organism that's one of the oldest large complicated organisms in the fossil record. And you've got um, some... Are these casts of fossils here? Yes, uh, these are some casts from the bedding planes that we've studied. You can see it's, it's quite large, maybe 15 centimetres long. Um, and you can see it's got um, lots of different segments. And then within each segment, you've got branches and then you've got sub-branches coming off it. So it's a sort of flat blob sitting on a rock. There's no eyes or head or legs or anything. No, <laughs> no. compared to animals, they are relatively simple. Not only kind of we don't see mouths uh, or legs, we don't see any kind of feeding apparatus at all. So it's thought that instead, uh, instead of kind of actively feeding, they absorb nutrients from the water column directly through their membrane. So it's quite a strange creature. I can imagine it sort of sitting on a, on a rock at the bottom of the sea. And I, and I imagine that in the sea today there are sessile creatures mm. that, that work in different ways. Is there anything at all like this? No, not at all. They're, these really are very, very unique. Uh, their, their body structures are we just don't don't find anything like them. And this makes it really hard to work out how it relates to animals. OK, so we're not quite sure exactly what this is, mm. but we've got a lot of fossils of them. Mm. And your paper is actually about working out the reproductive strategy. So that's whether it budded off and had little baby clones or it had eggs and sperm going into the ocean. But how is it possible to know how this thing had babies if you don't even know what it is? So fractifusis and all its... Well, its entire community was preserved under volcanic ash flow, rather like Pompeii. So everything in the ecosystem was preserved where it lived. So what we did is we, we went out there and we actually mapped out the positions of all the, all the fractifusers on the bedding planes so we could work out what they were up to. The patterns we find, which is quite hard to see if you're just looking at the, the data, is that the largest specimens are randomly distributed, but around them you have clusters of medium-sized fractifusus, and around the medium ones you then have lots of smaller ones distributed. So if you look at the smaller ones, they actually form clusters of clusters. So the important question then is how do they have babies? Because in modern creatures there's a whole load of different ways you could go about that, right? Yes, uh, with, uh, un- with underwater uh, marine organisms, there are three different ways you can produce babies. You can uh, mix eggs and sperm together and make seeds, which then get ejected into the water column and s- settle elsewhere. You can produce f- fragments or buds, uh, or you can reproduce um, asexually using uh, stolon or runners like strawberry plants. Okay, so you thought it's got to be one of these three yes. main things. Yes. How can you tell? So if you have waterborne propagules that settle out of a current onto a substrate, the current will drag the clusters that get produced into a long, thin line. You, you won't see nice round clusters. Furthermore, the clusters that you find will be 
relatively large. Fractifusus clusters are very small. They're only four or five centimetres. So what we thought is that these, these baby fractifusus must have been tethered to their parents in some way. So because all the little ones are clustered around the big ones yes. and they're not so far away and they haven't been sort of swept along in a line by a current... Yes. Just from that pattern, yeah. you've sort of figured out that they must be using this sort of runner-based mechanism. Yes, um, on the bedding plane, that's how the clusters form. What is quite interesting is that when you break down the fractifusus into different size classes, you see that the medium, the medium-sized ones and the small ones, which form clusters and clusters of clusters, reproduce in this way. But actually, the largest ones didn't get to the bedding plane in this way. You see a very stereotypical kind. Of waterborne propagule stage where you've got um they're, they're randomly distributed on the on the bedding surface um but this distribution is is current swept you still have directionality to it so what we think happened is that you had a few colonizers in the water column that landed and then once they landed and established themselves they then reproduced very quickly and rapidly via these runners or stolen producing the medium and small ones that you see. So we still don't know what, what they are, but we know how they live now. Yes, we, we know a lot more about how they lived and we can understand a lot more about, yes, the ecosystems they are part of. But unfortunately, what they were is still, still needs to be found. That was Dr Emily Mitchell of the Department of Earth Sciences at Cambridge University chatting to Sharmini Bundell. To read the paper, go to nature.com forward slash nature. Time now for our news chat, and Matt Crenson joins us on the line from Washington, D.C. Hi, Matt. Hi there. So an ambitious project which is using physics in the fight against cancer has just given out a second round of funding. What was the original aim of this project? It's, uh, well, it's an interesting uh, idea. It's a project of the U.S. National Cancer Institute um, that started around 2009, and it uh, the idea was to give physicists a crack at cancer. This sort of all goes back to 1971 when the so-called war on cancer was declared um, and the U.S. government uh, started spending a lot of money on cancer research. Um, A lot of progress has been made. There's a lot of cancers are much more survivable than they were 40 years ago. But the sort of fundamental understanding of the disease that they were hoping to get has not emerged. Um, It's turned out to be a very complex problem. So the hope with starting the project at the National Cancer Institute on Physical Oncology was that maybe physicists could learn something that would point in that direction. And 2009, it's already been a fair few years. What's been achieved so far? Well, that's that's the question, I think. So the idea back in 2009 was to really look at the fundamental causes of cancer. Um, But obviously, basic research is very hard, and fundamental insights are few and far between. So funding was first given out in 2012, um, so it's only been a few years. And not surprisingly, nothing really dramatic has come out of it. So the physicists who helped set up the program um, are complaining that the the focus is already shifting away from their fundamental search for for insights into causes of cancer itself towards more clinical applications like the the rest of cancer research. So why is funding being shifted from looking at these really fundamental questions to kind of more standard questions around cancer? Well, it, it really depends on, on whom you ask. Uh, if you ask the managers of the program, they'll say that it isn't being shifted away from these deeper questions. Some observers say, though, that it's a lot easier to justify funding more practical research that can be uh, applied 
clinically pretty quickly. What hope is there now for these more ambitious projects which are no longer funded under the scheme? Well, I think it's actually pretty good because um, this seems to have unleashed, this program that started about five or six years ago seems to have unleashed a wave of uh, interdisciplinarity in cancer research. And physicists have a lot more opportunities to get involved, and physical scientists in general. Most notably, maybe the Crick Institute in London that's going to open later this year is going to have a lot of opportunities for physicists to do research. And there's funding from other sources as well. So sticking with physicists but shifting topics slightly, other researchers have created a new cousin for graphene, haven't they? So since the discovery of graphene uh, a few years back, uh, physicists have been very excited about these types of materials. Um, graphene is a two-dimensional sheet of carbon. And it's been known theoretically that you can um, make these kinds of materials out of a number of different elements. So they've set about trying to make them. We've had uh, silicene and phosphorine and other uh, cousins of graphene. But what happened was two years ago, uh, someone from Stanford University predicted that stannine, which is made of tin, would have really interesting electrical conductance properties. Um, basically, it would be able to conduct electricity without producing waste heat at room temperature, which would make it very attractive for use in computers. The latest news is that they've actually produced this material, uh, stannine. Um, they weren't able to demonstrate that it has this unusual property. Two years seems really quite quick to go from predicting a material might exist with these exciting properties to actually having it in a lab. Well, I think the whole field is moving forward very rapidly uh, just because there's so much excitement about this. And no one, you know, you know before graphene, uh, I think it was theoretically predicted that you couldn't produce these sort of two-dimensional crystals, essentially crystal structures. But it it's now been shown over and over again that you can. It seems very exciting, the possibility of having this material that could conduct electricity without heat, but they haven't been able to show that aspect of the material yet? That's right. It's theoretically predicted, although there are some, there are some people who doubt that they've actually produced it, but it, it provides evidence that they actually produced this two-dimensional lattice of tin, um, but the, they weren't able to actually hook it up and show that it can uh, conduct electricity in the way that it's theoretically predicted to. So that's, uh, that's waiting for, for future experiments. Does it look feasible that future experiments will firstly be able to absolutely confirm this is stunning and secondly show that it does have this remarkable property? It really remains to be seen. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's waiting for the experiments to be done. Uh, but they certainly will be, and uh, we'll probably have that answer, the answer to that question in a few more years. Great. Thanks a lot for speaking with us, Matt. That's all we've got time for this week. Next time, we'll have a slightly shorter podcast for you, but fear not, we'll make it a good one. And for those that are interested, you can listen to this year's podcast from Nature, celebrating the Eppendorf Young Investigator Award, which each year celebrates a young biomedical researcher. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.